This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with a longtime friend, but she hasn't been back in, boy, over probably 10 or 12 years. Marissa Levin, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mark. And I really appreciate you saying longtime friend rather than old friend. Uh, I knew who you were probably before you knew who I was because <laughs> you, you started information experts in what, the early 90s, early mid 90s? I think this year it would be 29 or 30 years. Yeah. So, yeah, I was paying attention back then, but I don't know when I got on your radar. It wasn't that much longer. So, yes, we have been friends for a while. Yes. So let's start right there. Uh, Information Experts was a woman-owned small business that got uh, quite successful, which is why, you know, women-owned businesses have always been a favorite of mine. I was the only guy at the initial WIT meeting and I used to take my daughter when she was three over to the McLean Hilton yes. for those, uh, those networking sessions. Yep. Women uh, in technology. And, and we were information experts, uh, was a proud underwriter of their Metter protege program. And I was very honored to have served in a leadership capacity for WIT, as well as being one of the mentors in the Mentor Protege program as other women business owners came up behind me. So really wonderful to be able to support such a great organization. Yeah, and it remains a great organization today. So if if you are a woman in technology, you don't have to own a business. You don't have to be a woman to join. Uh, the reason I went early is because I wanted to show support and I anticipated at least one other guy there, but he, he bailed because he was a coward. Um, <laughs> and you were a very smart man. I mean, what, you know, the smartest people surround themselves with other smart people. And you took that to a whole nother level surrounding yourself with very smart women. So kudos to you for doing that. Well, you know, the best thing that came out of that meeting for me, I think, was meeting Valerie Perlowitz. Mm. who remains a great friend of mine today. Um, so anyway, let's get back to information experts. You started this company. Why? And uh, I'm going to ask a couple of specific questions about it. Sure. So I actually started that company because I had been working uh, for a man, and this is going back now 30 years, who was quite brilliant and gave me a wonderful career opportunity but when I went in to ask for a salary raise after I knew that I, he, I was making him a lot of money, he was double and triple booking me on jobs as a billable resource. I had brought in new clients and I had put myself through a master's degree program in organizational development and uh, curriculum development. And he capped my worth to his company at $34,000. He told me that I would never be worth anything more than $34,000. And so my mom 
<laughs> I know, right? He, I, yeah. I, I believe I sent him a thank you note at one point after we passed a, a multi-million dollar market information experts. My mom had always taught me uh, to never let anyone else determine your worth. And so if there's anyone listening you know, to this show that needs that message, remember that we alone determine our value and our worth, and we cannot allow external people to do so. So when he capped my worth at $34,000, I knew that my days were numbered there and that if I was ever going to truly step into my potential, you know, in terms of just being a human being and what my monetary worth was, I knew that I was going to have to leave. And I, you know, my undergraduate degree was in English with a concentration in Shakespeare. It's not that I ever thought I would be an entrepreneur, but I knew that I didn't want to work for someone who didn't value me. And really that is what inspired me to start my own company. That's funny. My degrees are in American literature with a specialty on 19th century American literature. <laughs> hey, there's something to be said about communication, right? So hey, we can write. We can write. We can communicate. We can articulate. We can express. And all of those things are certainly timeless skills. So tell me what uh, information experts did. What sure. was your area of expertise? So uh, I started the business, as I mentioned, I had a master's in organizational development with a focus on curriculum development. I really fell in love with the field of adult learning and education and training. And so I built a company around that. And when I started the company, this was long before, you know, the internet was what it is today. Uh, There was no uh, Facebook, there was no LinkedIn, there was no social media, there were no digital marketing strategies there was no e-learning training and development at that point was still uh, classroom based. It was all about having the training at different locations, uh, creating instructor guides, training guides, all paper-based, nothing online. And so, you know, that's just where the field was. And it wasn't until uh, John Chambers, the then CEO of Cisco had made the announcement that e-learning would be what was known as the, killer application of the internet did the field of education and training and curriculum and instructional design take a massive pivot to become what really it is today with you know a sense of focus on online learning web-based training mobile learning and literally overnight the pendulum swung from uh, being classroom based to being web-based and my first business lesson uh, after that happened was that you have to remain relevant in the marketplace or you will go out of business and be obsolete no matter how good your product or service is. That was my first pivot of about six or seven different pivots while I was running Information Experts, which I exited about 11 years ago. Um, I grew the company to about $13 million, 75 people. As you know, we were on the Inc. 500 three times in a row. I won over 90 different awards for leadership and creativity uh, you know, under my leadership. Uh, and then I exited out because I was no longer the right person to be running that company. And that's a whole nother story. Um, but, you know, Peter Principle does apply to the C-suite as well. And then I went in and I launched my next company. So you you had a different aspect of the company uh, back then that was uh, not yet a, a popular phrase. You You were very employee centric. And that was one of the things that I had heard. And that's why I wanted to know you. What 
what drove you in that direction and why did you do it? You know, I don't think that it was anything that was like intentional that I woke up one day and said, I'm going to develop an employee centric culture. In fact, the word culture really wasn't used back then. You know, it really, it just wasn't, it wasn't something that was talked about. I just knew that I wanted to create an environment where people felt appreciated, they felt seen, they felt heard, they had opportunities for growth. And I'm just a very relationship-centric person anyway. I mean, I don't know how to exist any other way. I'm all about connection. I'm all about collaboration. And, you know, the relationships that I develop in my life in all aspects of my life are just very deep. And so when I started my company, the first thing that I did, and again, you know, it wasn't because I thought that this is how you run a business or I didn't take a course on it. But the first thing that I did when I built my company, Mark, was I developed our core values. And, you know, this is going back almost 30 years ago. And that was just something that was really important to me to know, you know, what I stood for, uh, you know, what my moral compass was, uh, what my North Star was in terms of like how I wanted to conduct myself in business, the standards that I was going to have for my employees. And when I started my company, it was just me by myself. And my first hire, you know, my, one of my core values was quality. And it was quality uh, of products and services, quality of life inside the company and quality of life outside the company. And, you know, we all learn from our, both our positive and negative experiences and working for my old boss who didn't value me, that left an impression on me on what I didn't want. It really wasn't that I had such a clear direction on what I did want, but I had a very clear understanding of what I didn't want. And so that really drove me to say, if I'm going to do this myself, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I always say that, that building your first company is like building a plane while you're flying it. You're just kind of like figuring it out as you go along. You're hoping you're at the right altitude. You're hoping you have the right people next to you in the cockpit. You know, you're hoping you're making the right decisions in terms of direction. And I just, you know, I went very much on my heart and on my intuition in terms of how I wanted the, the environment to be inside of my company. And so I started with the core values and with the value of quality being quality of life inside the company, quality of life outside the company, quality of products and services, because, you know, I knew that I wanted to have balance um, with a family. My first hire actually was a director of quality control. And that went along with what the core value was, that I wanted to make sure that all of our products and services were of exceptional quality. I didn't want to skimp on that. And really it was from that moment on that I was very intentional about the atmosphere and the environment and the culture that I created. Cool. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll return with Marissa right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Marissa Levin. Marissa, uh, tell people where you morphed to and where you are now from information experts. Sure. So as I mentioned, you know, I left that company um, 11 or 12 years ago, and I launched a company called Successful Culture. It was just me uh, when I first started that. And 
there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, entrepreneurship is a very rewarding, but very hard path. And between things that were going on in my personal life and things that were going on in the business, you know, especially being a government contractor, being at the mercy of government and congressional agendas, Mark, I was exhausted and I'm very transparent about my journey. I don't, I don't sugarcoat it. I don't try and present something that didn't, that, you know, wasn't true. When I left information experts, I was exhausted. Most, you know, CEOs stay in their roles for an average of seven years. And I was in that role for 17 years. So by the time I left, you know, I had already been doing that role two and a half times longer than most CEOs stay in their roles. And it really is in the best interest of the company, uh, you know, for CEOs not to stay in their roles. I mean, they can, they, you know, the company cannot grow them or, you know, people change in terms of things that, uh, that set their soul on fire. And I've always been someone who, you know, really pays attention to what sets my soul on fire. There was a misalignment between my core value system in terms of being very committed to relationships and value and innovation and quality and where the government went at that time. And as you remember, they migrated to the lowest priced, technically acceptable mandate. And when they did that, the pressure that they put on government contractors and especially the small business community was that we had to get the cheapest labor and the cheapest resources and cut corners on our quality. And I had to really take a look at myself, Mark, about what I valued and who I was. And when you wake up every day and you are dreading going to work and you don't believe in the core value of your main customer at that time, the government was focused on LPTA, the lowest priced, and I knew that we would never be the lowest priced service provider. And so I had to make a decision. Do I change who I am and change my value system to bend to the value system of my largest client, or do I honor who I am? And so I chose to honor who I was, and I left, and I launched Successful Culture, and that company for me, that was me. And I was focused on working with leaders who were truly committed to building exceptional work environments where employees truly felt valued. And I know that I was so successful at that, at information experts. And that really was my passion. And that's why I launched Successful Culture. I merged with another company a few years ago uh, that was a leader in the HR space to evolve the brand into Successful Culture International. And we became a full global corporate culture consultancy. Uh, That partnership truly expanded my skill set. It allowed me to work with another phenomenal leader, Jennifer Brown, who is an expert in the HR space. And we created a lovely and very compelling leadership academy called the Scale Academy, the Successful Culture Advanced Leadership Education Academy. And we've been rolling that out. We do a lot of culture work, as you can imagine, with COVID uh, and the pandemic. That certainly took a toll on organizational culture. So we've been very busy. Uh, But we pivoted into a full global corporate culture consultancy. And then I also continue all of my CEO and my advisory board work uh, on the side of, you know, in addition to running SCI. Yeah. And, and that's actually why we hooked back up. I mean, I'm sorry it took so long anyway, yeah. because 
it's always fun talking to you. You, you make my brain work harder than usual. Um, but that board of advisor thing, um, I was looking for uh, our old buddy, Stan Kretschy. And yeah. unfortunately he passed and I did not hear uh, Stan was my go-to guy for actually he was on the show two or three times talking about boards and that's what I needed. I needed somebody here to talk about that. And lo and behold, Marissa shows up. Yay! <laughs> I love when that happens. Synchronicity, um, the universe listening. Um, yes, it, it did. And you know, it's, it's weird. That happens a lot to me. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative of that, but let's, let's talk about that. You know, did you have a board at, uh, information experts? Uh, we did have a board. I had put in a board. Oh gosh. Uh, I guess, well, I've been out now for, um, 11 years. So we put in a board probably in the last five years since I was there. And the reason that we put in the board, um, was because, I had been out to breakfast with one of my informal advisors. And I remember talking to him, telling him that I felt like what was going on in the company was like the wild, wild west. Uh, We had 75 projects going at one time and we had amazing people and we had people that were project management certified, but it just felt so chaotic. And so he's the one who suggested to me, why don't you think about an advisory board? So I was like, well, what's an advisory board? And, you know, he explained that it's, you know, you hand select a group of advisors and, um, and they are really tied to what, what I now call, call, and I coined this term, the holes and goals of an organization. And I talk about that in my book, uh, Built to Scale. And so I spent a year documenting my own process that I created called the scale model And it stands for Select, Compensate, Associate, Leverage, Evaluate, Evolve, and Exit. It's the full end-to-end process on how you select your advisors, how you integrate them into your company, what the compensation model should be, how you leverage your board, uh, and then how you evaluate and evolve the board and potentially even exit those members when they no longer fit. So I, you know, there was nothing else out there uh, at all on how to implement a board. I interviewed about 150 other business owners as I was writing the book and I put it out there on Amazon and it took on a life of its own and it's in about 14 different countries now. And it's truly the only model end to end on how to build advisory boards. And so we do that work and, um, and I have partnered with a company called Lodestone Global, who is also a leader in the advisory board space. And the reason I partnered is because quite frankly, I can't keep up with the demand and the pace and the intensity of the work required to do the amount of work that we, you know, that I'm requested to do. And Lodestone is a phenomenal partner and they've really elevated the uh, quality of the engagements that I have now because of how they operate in this space. Okay. What's the name of the book again, please? Built to scale, S-C-A-L-E, built to scale. And it's the whole model on how to build advisory boards. It's the only model out there. All right. So uh, when you're putting together a board, I mean, I assume the components change from company to company because the needs may be different. Is that accurate? 
Oh, completely. Every board is different. Every company is different. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have to we have to go in and and I it says the beginning is the most important part of the work. And the reason is because it's doing that upfront analysis to really understand what your holes and your goals are in your company and to understand that building an advisory board should not be triage. It should not be something that's trying to save your company or get your company out of hot water. It's a strategic initiative that can help you to, you know, really achieve the, the, uh, the growth goals that you have for your company. But the analysis upfront to understand what you need and who you need is paramount to the success of an advisory board. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center. Marissa and I are going to be continuing on boards right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Marissa Levin. Marissa, give the uh, uh, people your, your website, please. Uh, successfulculture.com, or if you want information on the book, it's built to scale.info. It's all spelled out, built to scale.info for the book information. Cool. On the board side of thing, uh, I told you this story earlier, so I'll repeat it and we'll go into uh, why. Uh, The first board I spoke to was for a major reseller in the government market. And I was invited by a CEO who was relatively new, but he knew me to speak to the board on marketing issues. And I walked in and my mouth often operates without... uh, uh, thinking real deep. And I, I looked at the CEO and said, damn, there's a lot of old white guys here. And that's what the boards were like in the 90s. And I, I have a feeling they haven't changed a great deal. What's the problem with that scenario? So the problem with that scenario is that it does not reflect reality. Uh, and this is something that we talk about with our clients right up front uh, you know, we'll get called by a company. And, and the first thing that I do is I look at the executive team for diversity. It's the first thing that I do. So that, and the reason that I do that is to know if I'm going to have a challenge or really an opportunity to educate them on the importance of the diversity. If their executive team is diverse, I know that they're already mindful about that. If it's uh, ethnically diverse, if it's gender diverse, if it's age diverse, whatever it might be, uh, you know, how mindful and intentional are they being in terms of their diversity? And we ask when we are building boards what their diversity profile is inside the company. I want to know how diverse they are throughout the company because it's important for leaders, Mark, to remember that they are always being watched. Leaders are always under the microscope. They're under the microscope from their employees. They're under the microscope from their clients, their shareholders, their vendors. And what they do speaks volumes or what they don't do speaks volumes. So we want the advisory boards that we bring in and the boards of directors, we want them to reflect Uh, where the company is today regarding diversity, uh, what their customer base is regarding diversity, where they want to go. You know, if they are looking to be a global company, you can't have four or five white males on your executive team and on your advisory board. Uh, You know, it's not about what you say. It's not about what your mission says. 
or your values, it's what you do. So, you know, a company can say that they're committed to diversity or, you know, our company does a lot of training on unconscious bias and creating safe workspaces that are committed to diversity and equity and inclusion. And it's great for leaders to talk the talk and say all the right things. But if you've got a culture where people are suppressed and they're not really able to express themselves freely or have those types of conversations, it doesn't really matter what you say. It's about what, how people feel inside the company. And it's the same thing when you build an advisory board, it has to reflect who you really are inside. Okay. Is that one of your four big mistakes for assembling a board? That, I mean, that's one of them. Uh, The other ones are, you know, companies get really infatuated with big name advisors, like they'll pursue (laughs) big name executive, uh, you know, because they want that credibility and they want that respect and they want access to that that Rolodex, right? Or that, you know, that network. Right. But then what happens is, is this advisor, you know, who basically says yes to advisory boards so that they can lend out their name. And I've gotten asked to be on advisory boards because of my name or my brand or whatever. And then I'm like, well, are you actually going to meet? Are we going to have meetings? You know, and they're not ready for a board. They, you know, they just think that it's a good idea. Um, but if you go for the, the big name, what you're doing is you're assigning one of those coveted board seats that could go to someone who really can impact your company direction and growth. You're taking up one of those seats. And, you know, the people who serve on advisory boards, they're on those boards because they want to help. They believe in the leadership team. They believe in the direction of the company. They want to stay relevant. You know, they want to stay active and connected and engaged. And so you want to make sure that those advisory board seats go to people who really align with your culture, where you want to take the business, and who are willing to roll up their sleeves to, you know, to, to do the work that's needed. So that's the, that's the first mistake. The second mistake is... Uh, that there's no dedicated swim lanes. And, you know, we, we, I see this a lot that they assemble this top talent advisory board, hoping for big results, but there's no clear advisory roadmap or clearly defined roles and responsibilities. And so that's going to cause slow, if not stagnant process. So what we do when we develop our boards uh, is we create a full strategic growth plan and we develop what is what I call dedicated swim lanes. So there'll be a seat for M&A, right? If you know that you're going to grow your company through M&A, that's a great seat to have. If you know that you're going from 25 million to 75 million, maybe you want a finance seat on the board that can truly mentor your CFO. Maybe you have to implement a digital marketing strategy enterprise-wide, that's becoming an important board seat. Storytelling is becoming an important board seat. There's lots of different types of board seats. Um, You know, uh, cybersecurity is an important board seat now. So knowing what your holes and goals are is super important to make sure that you develop dedicated swim lanes. Another mistake is to know that you're going to get what you pay for. And we can, you know, kind of take this conversation into the compensation section, because I know that was also something that we wanted to talk about. But if you have no money and you want help, you're going to get what you pay for. You got to find a way to show good faith and show you've got some skin in the game to pay your advisors something. And I talk about this in the board, all the different types of structures that you can have and get creative with it. But you want to incent them to stay in the game and show that you're committed to. 
So that's the third. Um, and then the fourth is, you know, focusing on where you are rather than where you're going. And uh, you really want to, you know, think big. Um, and then finally, I'll just throw in the fifth one for add and measure uh, is um, not listening. So you get great advice and then you don't implement. There's nothing more frustrating as a board member to see that. And if you're not going to be open to the change, you're not ready. Having been a consultant for the last 36 years, I've run across that a few times. <laughs> I know, I know. It's uh, it's frustrating, you know, because you get yourself invested in a company and then you know it. You can see what needs to be done. And we all know that change is hard and painful and messy. There's no question. We all you know, all kind of bristle at having to make really big changes. Um, but if you're going to pay people to come in and evaluate your company and tell you that your baby's ugly, then you might want to listen to them. Okay. Let's touch on that compensation aspect in a little more detail. Your book sure. has some research on that as well. Yeah. And I've got updated information on that. So I'm pulling up the chart right now as we talked and I want to credit Lodestone for this, my strategic partner, Lodestone Global. You can go to lodestoneglobal.com. You'll see me on their team page. I'm very grateful and blessed to be able to work in lockstep uh, with William Tenenbaum, who is the managing partner there. You know, we are two peas in a pod when we work on our advisory board uh, engagements. Um, really a phenomenal uh, leader. And, um, and they do very detailed compensation reports every single year. Now they work with some of the larger companies, um, but I can still share some of the overall trends and statistics. So last year they, uh, they surveyed, um, let's see, 375 companies across 33 different industries and 38 countries to okay. analyze board practices and compensation. They, they shared, um, 94% of companies reported increased revenues and 92% of companies reported an increased EBITDA, the earnings before income taxes and depreciation. And so this proves that getting a board in place, it's not just, you know, something that is, that feels good. There is a direct correlation and the average revenue increase was, was about 50%. 53% of their participants categorized the boards as indispensable or very effective at driving corporate strategy. And so this shows that when you have the right advisors around the table, that your board can be essential to achieving the corporate growth. You know, conversely, um, it also shows that if you do not carefully select people who you really need, you may not get the results you want. <laughs> that is true. That is true. We also found, uh, or Lodestone found, that 71% of the companies did have women as board members, up from 61% in 2019 and 60% from 2018, and that the number of advisors was up to a medium of 2.0 versus 1.5. So that's a 33% representation on a typical board versus 20% in 2018. And 97% of boards with at least one woman advisor reported that their companies increased revenues. 
So that's that's really important. Now, as I mentioned, Lodestone, you know, typically deals with some of the larger companies, but the median total compensation for an advisory board, and this is, you know, remember, you know, some of these companies, you know, 75 million, 100 million, but the median total compensation for an advisor was about $40,000. It's not, that's not cheap. Now, it's all based on the size. So if you're a small company, you know, you can say, you can reduce that, you know, if you're at 100 million and you're getting 40K, probably if you're at 10 million, you might get 4K, right? It really, it really kind of depends, or maybe you'll, you know, maybe it will be 15K. Like we would end up doing that research. We've got the ability to go into the database and look at the compensation based on your average revenues. And when we build the advisory boards, we build a, a custom compensation profile for the companies that we build the boards for. Cool. We're going to take our last break. I'll be back with Marissa right after this. You're listening to Amtower Off Center. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with my friend, my longtime friend, Marissa Levin. Marissa, the, the importance of cultural fit. You know, you mentioned board seats for M&A absolutely critical. It's a huge part of the growth of GovCon. But a lot of the reasons M&As fail is that cultural fit. And you say the same thing is important for board members, right? Yes. Tremendous. Uh, When we do the uh, advisory board search, it isn't just about knowing the industry or the number of uh, years of experience or knowing the technology or having the network, although all those things are very important, it's very critical that the advisory board aligns with the corporate culture. This becomes an extension of the company, and these advisors do not work in a vacuum. They work with the leadership team of the organization. So for a lot of the advisory boards that we put in, there are different working committees, and they have to work, say, for example, I'm on an advisory board uh, for Dindin, uh, John Agre's company, Dindin, which is the uh, DC region's number one food delivery. And I'm on their advisory board. And so I'm also on a marketing subcommittee. And so I, as a member of that, I'm working with the executive team of Dindin who runs their marketing. And so there has to be a cultural fit between the advisory board in terms of how they, uh, how they engage, how they see the industry, whether or not they're risk aversive uh, or risk aggressive, that's something that's very important. Now, obviously, we don't want people to look and think exactly as we do, but there are certain things that need to be in alignment and risk is one of them. You know, if you're a company that or a leader that is a little bit more risk conservative, uh, you, the last thing you want is to put an advisory board in place where it's super aggressive and they're going to push you to do things that really don't feel good for you. You know, it's one thing to be out of our comfort zone. It's another thing to be rubbed the wrong way. It's important that that advisory board aligned with the culture of the organization because it truly is an extension of the cult of the company and getting out there as we start to network again. You know, I just promoted Dindin, right? I'm a brand ambassador for the companies that I sit on their advisory boards. So you want your advisors to be able to truly talk about the culture and the organization in which they represent. Okay. Quick aside here. Um, You kind of intimated this, but can a board member talk 
directly to other employees of the company, should they? And what would the circumstances be? Yes. I mean, we encourage that. So we encourage working committees and subgroups, which, by the way, are additional compensation because that's an additional uh, responsibility and obligation and time investment of a board member that if they decide, if they step up to lead a, a committee, then, you know, that that's another job that they're doing. But we encourage that. We cannot have the advisory board work in a vacuum. Now, look, some of our clients will say, hey, you know, my advisory board is here to is here to, here to support me and the C-suite. And that's as far as we're going. Then there are other advisory boards. And this is how, you know, when I ran my company, Mark, and I ran information experts and I had my advisory board in place, I wanted my advisory board to be very integrated into my company. And it definitely was. I had an advisor set up a whole PMO, a project, a program management office for me. That was a very specific goal for me to have as an advisor uh, to help me set up a PMO. And so they were deeply entrenched in the company. I had um, Greg Rothwell, who you may remember that name. I mean, you know, he stood up Eagle and he stood up tips and he, you know, was the commissioner in IRS and he was a leader at Department of Homeland Security. He became an uh, integral advisor to me. I mean, just essential. But I didn't want him just to mentor and, and help me develop. I wanted him fully engaged in my company. And so I, I made sure that he was fully engaged. You know, I think that advisors are wonderful tools and an advisory board is a wonderful tool to attract top talent as well as to retain top talent. And so, you know, you get these people who really know what they're talking about, leverage them, bring them into your company. Don't just keep them siloed off for the C-suite. Yeah, I and and go back to my early visiting uh, couple of boards. You know, I would never see them like in the company cafeteria. They'd always be dining in the executive boardroom. I'd talk to employees, particularly those I worked with in sales, marketing, and BD. And honestly, they didn't know who half the board was. So I, I think that the approach you teach is... Uh, frankly, cutting edge. Um, so it just I, makes sense to me, you know, like get them engaged. Well, I mean, you you were one of those early uh, adopters of, and before it probably had a name, management by walking around. MBWA, right? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, and and that's, again, one of the things that I had heard about you. Here's a woman who's not only started a company that's doing well, she's engaged with the company, with the employees, with the customers. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to know who the hell you were. And, I, and I'm certainly glad we, uh, we hooked up. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad that we've reconnected too. Yeah. And we, we aren't going to let it go now. So, um, uh, so wrap up by telling me, uh, if a company is interested after hearing our discussion here, how should they get started? Uh, they can get started, first of all, I would say by going to builttoscale.info or going to Amazon and ordering Built to Scale. Uh, get the book so that you can really understand what it means to build an advisory board and what the process is. Uh, I also have a lot of different, you know, I, I'm a, I was an Inc. Magazine columnist for a long time. And I'll be resurrecting that column 
shortly. Um, but I, I, I took a break, but I wrote in my ink column on leadership. I wrote a lot about advisory boards. So if you Google Inc magazine and Marissa Levin, you'll see all my articles come up and there's several on there. I was also, as you know, the syndicated columnist for smart CEO magazine, uh, when they were in publication and I ran the advisory board column. So if you go to successfulculture.com, all of those articles are on there and they're also on my built to scale site, the built to scale.info. And of course you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Marissa Levin one, uh, and I'm very active on LinkedIn and I'm happy to send anyone who reaches out to me, any of my columns or articles or get on a call with someone to answer information. Cool. Um, final question. What, you know, I know the the reason this whole thing started for me is I keep getting questions from companies, you know, I'm thinking about a board. Does a company have to be a certain size before it has a board? And let me, let me back that up a second. I'm a solopreneur. Mm-hmm. I, I've had boards of advisors myself, people who I trust and, uh, you know, they're the, I think the biggest one was, was five people and we would get together twice a year, usually at conferences where I'd be speaking and, and they'd be speaking or, uh, that I know they'd be attending, but, you know, we'd spend three or four hours together in a brainstorm session. So I, I think that's a little unique being a solopreneur, but for, from your perspective, what size should a company be? I've had boards of advisors myself people who I trust and uh, you know, they're the, I think the biggest one was, was five people and we would get together twice a year, usually at conferences where I'd be speaking and and they'd be speaking or uh, that I know they'd be attending, but you know, we'd spend three or four hours together in a brainstorm session. So I, I think that's a little unique being a solopreneur, but from your perspective, what size should a company be? So that's such a great question, Mark. You know, building an advisory board all starts with your mindset of being of knowing that asking for help is the single most important thing that anyone can do to grow, especially business owners. Asking for help is the single most important thing that we can do. And so once you've adapted that mindset, it doesn't matter how large your company is. I have I have a whole slew of advisors, you know, for my solopreneur group. I have a quarterly mastermind group. And right now, you know, I've got Jen as my partner and we have a few people that work for us. But I also run the solopreneur company and my mastermind group is my lifeline to making sure that I am reaching my potential and that I am seeing my blind spots. So it's a mindset. I know companies that are $100 million and don't have an advisory board. And I know companies that are under a million dollars and have advisors all around them. It really is about how you feel uh, in, regarding asking for help. And any block, any mindset block that you have about asking for help, do what you need to do to get through that. And I work on that, you know, with the, with leaderships and their, and their mindsets through my individual coaching when I work with CEOs. But the worst thing that we can do is to think that we have all of the answers. And, you know, I want to really drive home the point, Mark. And this is me working with, I have worked with now thousands of CEOs over the last 30 years. There are no unique challenges. None. We're all going through the same things. We're all experiencing 
the same challenges. We all have the same fears, the same doubts. Every challenge you have, someone has already figured out. Every doubt that you have, someone else has already overcome. So why go through this process alone? Your problem has already been solved by somebody. So when we put ourselves out there, we allow ourselves to grow more quickly, grow you know, more smartly, avoid the pitfalls and the landmines that are out there and do things you know, in, a, in a more profitable, efficient and enjoyable way. Marissa, thanks so much. The book is Built to Scale. Marissa's website is SuccessfulCultureOneWord.com. Yes. And again, you can find Marissa on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for joining me. And let's uh, figure out another topic to discuss in the relative near term so we absolutely do not lose touch. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a whole list. So we will. Oh, gee, I'm shocked. Are you surprised that I have something to say? (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much. This is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government. I focus, however, on social selling, uh, building the subject matter expert platform, and weaving content into that and leveraging LinkedIn. If that resonates, drop me a line at markamtower at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to Amtower Off-Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 